0: Good morning, welcome to Inner Guidance Daily. How are you guys doing today? How are you feeling? What's going on in your mind and in your heart? Um, Today, I wanted to share with you uh, an author you may or may not know, I'm assuming you know, but if you don't, that's okay. Um, Her name is Toni Morrison, and I am going to read to you a chapter called The Slave Body and the Black Body um, from the Source of Self-Regard. And it's a really important chapter to hear right now, uh, wherever you are, you know, allow yourself to have space, no distractions or something that you can do while you focus on hearing the words that I read out, um, because it is just a really, uh, insightful and soulful, uh, experience to read this. I've read it before, and then I read it last week, and it just resonated so deeply that I felt called to share this chapter with you. If you don't know about Toni Morrison, again, that's okay, it's all right, Um, but she is one of the most celebrated authors in the world. She is the first African American woman to win the Nobel Prize in literature, and her work has inspired generations of writers to follow in her footsteps. Um, she is mostly known for writing, uh, the bluest eyes and beloved and the pieces I am and so many more. And so this book, the sources of self-regard is selected essays and speeches and meditations from Toni Morrison. And this is one of the speeches she gave. Um, and I explain, you know, and actually she explains also in the speech, you know, what this is in reference to. but. It's a really important one. It will give you a lot of insight and I am honored to be able to share it with you. Thank you for joining the Inner Guidance Daily and I will see you soon. The slave body and the black body. In 1988, the same year James Cameron opened America's Black Holocaust Museum here in Milwaukee. I responded to an interviewer's question. Having published a novel investigating the lives of a family born into bondage, I was being asked about the need for the purpose in articulating that unspeakable part of American history, the need for remembering the men, the women, the children who survived or did not survive the 300 odd years of international commerce in which their bodies, their minds, their talents, their children, their labor, were exchanged for money. Money they could lay no claim to. Since the argument for shunning bad memories or sublimating them was so strong, and in some quarters understood not only to be progressive, but healthy. Why would I want to disturb the scars that civil war civic battle and time itself had covered? The slave body was dead, wasn't it? The black body was alive, wasn't it? Not just walking, talking and working and reproducing itself, but flourishing, enjoying the benefits of full citizenship and the fruits of its own labor. The question seemed to suggest that, whatever the level of accomplishment, little good could come from writing a book that peeled away the layers of scar tissue that the black body had grown in order to obscure, if not annihilate the slave body underneath. My answer was personal. It came from a kind of exhaustion that followed the completion of my novel, the completion of my novel an irritability, a sorrow. There's no place, I said, where you or I can go to think about or not think about, to summon the presence or recollect the absence of slaves. Nothing that reminds us of the ones who made the journey and of those who did not make it. There is no suitable memorial or plaque or wreath or wall or park or skyscraper lobby There's no 300-foot tower. There's no small bench by the road. There's not even a tree scored with an initial that I can visit, or you can visit in Charleston or Savannah or New York or Providence or better still on the banks of the Mississippi. Somebody told me, I continued, that there's a gentleman in Washington who makes a living by taking busloads of people around to see the monuments of the city. He has complained because there's never anything there about black people that he can show. I can't explain to you why I think it's important, but I really do. I think it would refresh not only that, not only for the black people, it would suggest the moral clarity among white people when they were at their best, when they risked something, when they didn't have to risk and could have chosen to be silent. There's no monument for that either. Except in the names of institutions to pay homage to a white person's care or generosity. Spingard, General Howard, Spellman, etc. I don't have any models in mind, I said, or any person or even any art form. I just have the hunger for a permanent place. It doesn't have to be huge, monumental, face cut into a mountain. It can be small. Some place where you can put your feet up. It can be a tree. It doesn't have to be a statue or a liberty. As you can tell, I was feeling quite bereft when I made those comments. When I used the term slave body to distinguish it from black body, I mean to underscore the fact that slavery and racism are two separate phenomena. The origins of slavery are not necessarily, or even ordinarily, racist. Selling, owning people is an old commerce. There are probably no people in the auditorium among whose ancestors are within whose tribe. There were no slaves. If you're Christian, among your people were slaves. If you're Jewish, among your people were slaves. If you're Muslim, among your, among your people were they enslaved. If your ancestors are European, they lived under this serfdom of Eastern Europe the tenacity, the tenacity of feudalism in England, in Viking Europe. In the 16th century, Venice and Florence, the majority of population of ancient Rome and ancient Greece, Greece, all were deliberately constructed in slave societies. Medieval Ghana, the Dami, the Ashanti kingdom, slavery was critical to the world of Islam and systematic in the Orient, including a thousand years in Korea alone we are all implicated in the institution the colonists of the new world patterning their economic economies on those earlier and contemporary societies that were dependent on free or forced labor tried to enslave indigenous populations and would have imported any foreign available capable and survivable Available became highly organized African kingdoms could provide laborers to Europeans, capable because they were clever, strong, and adaptable, survivable because they were creative, spiritual, and intensely interested in their children. Foreigners from Africa fit the bill. Not only the origins, but the consequences of slavery Slavery are not always racist. What is peculiar peculiar about new world slavery is not its existence, but its conversion into the tenacity of racism. The, the dishonor associated with having been enslaved does not inevitably doom one's heirs to vilification, demonization, or crucification. What sustains these later is racism. Much of what Excuse me, much of what made New World slavery exceptional was the highly identifiable racial signs of its population which skin color, primarily but not exclusively, interfered with the ability of subsequent generations to merge into the non slave population. For them there was a virtually no chance to hide disguise or elude former slave status for a marked visibility and force division between former slave and non-slave, and supported racial hierarchy. The ease, therefore, of moving from the dishonor associated with the slave body to the contempt in which the freed black body was held became almost seamless because the intervening years of the Enlightenment saw a marriage of aesthetics and science and a move towards transcendent whiteness. In this racism, the slave body disappeared, but the black, black body remained and is morphed into a synonym for poor people, a synonym for criminalizing, them, and a flashpoint for public policy. For there is no discourse in economies, in education, in ho- housing, in religion, in healthcare, in entertainment, in the criminal justice system, in welfare, in labor, po- labor policy, in almost any of the na- national debates that continue to baffle us, in which the black body is not the elephant in the room, the ghost in the machine, the subject, if not the topic, of the negotiations." this museum's project have enormous powers. First is the power of memorializing. The impulse to memorialize the certain events people and population comes at a certain times. When what has happened is finally understood or is a forthright assertion of civic or personal pride, tombs and palaces are built, flowers heap. Statues rise, archives, hospitals, parks, museums are constructed. Time being such an important factor in this process, most of the participants in the events being remembered never see them. But the growth of this country in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, resting heavily on the avali- availability of free labor, is complicated and exceptional. Exceptional because of its length and its ch- chattel nature complex because of its intricate relationship to the cultural, economic, and intellectual development of the nation. That is what we must remember. There is another power this project has of making us aware of the ever-flexible, always adaptable, persistently slippery forms of modern racism in which the slave body is reconstructed and re-enters the Black body as an American form of ethnic cleansing, in which a monstrously large number of Black men and women are carefully swept into prisons, where they become once again free labor, once again corralled for profit. Make no mistake, the privatization of prisons is less about unburdening taxpayers. it is about providing bankrupt communities with source of income, income, and especially about providing corporations with a captured population available for unpaid labor. The third power of the museum's project, perhaps its most important, certainly its most gratifying, is the gaze it has cast on the immortalizing triumph aspects of the history of the Republic in black and white. This is what I sense in spite of all the commercial and political strategies to separate, divide, distort. Young people seem to be truly tired of racism's control over their lives. The art community is exhausted by and rebellious towards its limitations. Low-income people who discover how entangled and held down they are, its divisive economic grasp loathe it. Scholars, unintimidated by its cling, are disassembling it. We are becoming more industrious in substituting accuracy, other perspectives, other narratives in place of phantom histories, polluted politics, and media manipulation. I am pleased that my appearance coincides with the exhibit of African-American artists whose eyes encounter at every level stereotyping and visual debasement prevalent elsewhere. Through their art, their taste, their genius, we see African-American subjects as individuals as cherished, as understood Viewing this display of their force, their life-giving properties, their humanity, their joy, their will out to be enough to forestall the reach of racism's tentacles ought to be enough to protect us from its uninformed, uneducated, relentlessly toxic touch. Just as the commitment of this community ought to be enough, don't you think? Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, especially this one. And if you feel like somebody else could benefit from hearing this, feel free to pass it along. And I also recommend purchasing the book, The Source of Self-Regard by Toni Morrison. There are beautiful things in there in addition to this one, and it's very relevant. And a lot of her work is relevant for what we're talking about today. If books aren't your thing, you know, she has a lot of videos online, interviews. Uh, She's now passed away but, um, in 2019 she passed, uh, but there's still so many, uh, resources and information on her work and who she was as a person. And I really encourage you to, uh, seek that out if you haven't already. Thank you again for tuning to inner guidance daily, and I'll see you tomorrow, uh, for another show and, um, be well, stay safe and I'll see you soon.